Hi, this is Wilson with Renew Church OC. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We're a church for imperfect people only. We're in our series, LA is Corinth. Because as we walk through 1 Corinthians, we see so many similarities between that city and ours. Like LA, it was a port city filled with wealth and immigration. It was a sports capital, second only to the Olympics. Like LA, it was extremely sexualized with Aphrodite as the goddess of love and her temple just outside the city. A part of worshiping her was sleeping with one of her 1,000 priestess. Lastly, like LA, the church was deeply divided along political lines. Sound familiar? And the whole time, Paul is trying to call the community of Christ to live Christian values in the midst of this culture, and it's a fight. As we walk through this letter, we are encouraged and called in the same ways to live for Jesus while living in L.A. All right, if I could get your attention, everyone, if we could uh, come back together, Renew Church, if we can come back together. You know, I am so, so happy that we love to talk. We love to share. That's a beautiful thing about our church. And uh, even afterwards, I hope there's an afterglow that you guys can go and you can share and talk some more about fun things, about meaningful things. But it's always good. It's always good. Hey, it's good to be together. Amen? Amen. I love, thank you. Thank you for the clap. <laughs> I love the energy that uh, we have today. And it's very fitting that we have some energy, not because it's Super Bowl Sunday, but we want to look at the most exciting event of all time, of all time, whoa, superlatives here. We want to study the greatest event in all of human history. Now you might be thinking to yourself, wow, you know, what do you mean by all this? Well, we do, we want to study the greatest event in all of human history, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now you might say, most exciting, greatest event of all time, of all history, how is that? Well, this morning, I want to prove to you that this isn't all just hype, that it's not just puff, it's not an exaggeration. I want to show you that all of these superlatives are appropriate and fitting to what we're going to look at this morning. So in order to present the resurrection properly, we're going to look at two scriptural passages. Now, I know I'm asking a lot from you, but we as Renewed Church, we love the Word of God. And so I think we can do it, okay? We're going to look at two scriptural passages. Number one, John's gospel about the resurrection in John chapter 20. If you want to take your Bibles or your devices, you can turn there. And then we're also, number two, going to look at Paul's letter to the Corinthians, where, what we've been going through. And we land today on 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 20. We're going to look at both of those passages. We're going to go back and forth. And we're going to look at the significance of the greatest, most exciting event in all of human history. Are you excited? Yeah, okay, good, good. Oh, you can clap for that. That's cool, that's cool. All right, so let's look at it. John chapter 20, and we'll have it up here for those of you that don't have devices or, or Bibles. John chapter 20. And again, we're going to read it in its entirety. But we, as Renew Church, we love the Word of God. And we love studying the Word of God. So this isn't going to be a problem for us, okay? John chapter 20, let me get, begin reading. And we're going to read from 1 
to 21. Okay, a lot of verses here. Okay, John chapter 20. Here's the word of God. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw the tomb had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Verse 3. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Verse 6. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. Verse 8. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. Verse 13. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not realize that it was Jesus. Verse 15, he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking that she was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rebani, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Verse 20. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. We're going to look at three profoundly powerful points about the resurrection this morning that will not only encourage your hearts, but I really believe, if you will allow it, will transform your lives. So we want to look at the greatest event in all of human history, or of all time, but it started with the darkest night in all of human history. If you're taking notes, uh, write this down. The first point is the darkest night in all of human history. Verse 1, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. Now, I know in context this is referring to physical darkness, but in light of what just happened in context here, spiritually and emotionally, this was the darkest night. Now, it seems like an exaggeration to say that this was the darkest night in all of human history. If you've studied history, you know that there have been many dark times. Why is this the darkest night in all of human history? It's because of who this is. Think about this, and I know it's hard to comprehend this, but think about it. God is dead. 
The Lord of life has just succumbed to death. The immortal one has surrendered to mortality. Jesus, the creator of history, now it's unbelievable to think this, Jesus, the creator of history, is now history. Now, what makes up a dark night? Well, a dark night can happen when there are expectations that are not met. The disciples had followed Jesus for three plus years. And in that time, they were convinced that he was Mashiach, that he was the prophesied anointed king that was to come. And so they hitched all of their hopes and all of their dreams on him because they believed he would meet those prophetic expectations to set up his kingdom. But instead of rising to power and establishing this kingly government, Jesus is executed on an accursed Roman cross. Now imagine the feeling of betrayal that the disciples must have felt in Jesus. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever felt betrayed in your life? Maybe by a friend. Maybe by a situation. Maybe you needed something to come through and your expectation was not met. And you're desperate to have that thing come true. That is definitely a dark night, isn't it? What makes up a dark night? Well, when there is utter defeat without hope. Many of us have watched The Passion of the Christ. And many of us, you know, in preparing for Easter, will watch The Passion. You know, I have to be honest with you. When I watch it, it is so hard for me to watch. And I've watched it numerous times. It's, it's, uh, it's a part of my tradition to watch Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. It is an amazing movie. And you guys know this. But it's all about the brutality that Jesus had to endure. And it's still hard for me to get myself ready to watch it, right? Jesus' execution was extremely brutal. The New Testament Gospels tell us that he was beaten and scourged and tortured before he hung on that cross. And Mel Gibson's portrayal kind of shows that. The Old Testament prophets said this. They prophesied that after they were done with him hanging on that cross that he wouldn't even look like a man. Isaiah 52 and verse 14 says, His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form beyond human likeness. That was how brutal Jesus' uh, execution was. Now imagine being transported back to the time of the cross. Would that scene have brought you any hope? Any at all? I'm sure the disciples were horrified to see Jesus and his disfigurement that he didn't even look like the Messiah that they had uh, put their hopes and dreams upon. And all hope was finally extinguished when that soldier thrust that spear into Jesus' side and all that water and uh, blood gushed out of him. That signaled utter defeat. Hey, what makes things dark? What makes a night dark? When there are expectations that are not met, when there's utter defeat without any hope, and number three, when there is great suffering without a purpose. The disciples are hiding. They're afraid of being hounded and rounding, rounded up by the Jewish leaders to share a similar fate with their teacher. Before, before the crucifixion, they could endure it because Jesus was there. But now Jesus is dead. There's no reason for it anymore. If Jesus is dead, then to the disciples, there's no purpose for suffering, is there? 
You see, the Apostle Paul encapsulates this very sentiment even better in our text in 1 Corinthians 15. And if we could put it up right here. If you want to turn there, you can do that. But I want us to look at what Paul says. And he says it even better than how I've just put it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's begin reading in verse 12. It said, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But if he did not, but if he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. And if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are all people most to be pitied. Paul says this so well. If there is no resurrection, Paul says we see seven huge problems as Christians. What if there was no resurrection? Can you put the next slide up? What if there was no resurrection? Paul unpacks it for us. Verse 13, he says if there's no resurrection, Jesus didn't rise as he promised. All throughout the Gospels, Jesus promised that as Messiah, he would be sacrificed for sin and would rise again from death. Remember when he told the Jewish leaders, destroy this temple, and in three days I will build it up again. He was talking about himself, that he would rise from the dead. If there's no resurrection, then Jesus could not keep his promises. Jesus was just a human being who died like any other human being. What good is that? Paul says it this way also. If there's no resurrection, verse 14, the gospel preaching is useless. Because the gospel means good news. It's all about the life and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Jesus was just a human man who didn't rise from the dead, he's not the son of God. He's not the savior. He didn't accomplish redemption. If there's no resurrection, the gospel we proclaim is snake oil. It's just a scam that doesn't help anyone. Not only that, Paul says, if there's no resurrection, verse 14, the Christian faith is worthless. If there's no resurrection, your faith is futile. That's what he says. There's no point to you striving to be Christ-like. There's no point in assembling together as a community of Christ. There's no point of a future glory or a heaven awaiting us. As a matter of fact, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 32, Paul says it this way. If the dead are not raised, let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Everything is pointless. You see, if there's no resurrection, then Jesus uh, didn't rise like he promised. The gospel preaching is useless. Christian faith is worthless. And in verse 15, Christian people are false witnesses. Right? If there's no resurrection, then Christians have been lying about God and have been sharing uh, something that God never uh, that not, God never intended. And not only that, verse 17, everyone is in a state of sin. The Bible teaches that all human beings since Adam have a deadly virus within them. We call it the fall. And the gospel offers us a cure to this fallenness. It was paid for by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. 
It was validated by the power of the resurrection from the grave. If there is no resurrection, then we're still under sin. We still carry its deadly disease. We're still under its unbroken power. All of our sins cling to us without a cure. There's no vaccination of propitiation or forgiveness that can cure us of this. And not only that, verse 18, then everyone, if everyone is in a state of sin, verse 18, everyone is destined to death. Because of our sin, the Bible teaches the result of the fallenness that we have in, our, in us, this disease leads to death. And we're talking about two deaths here. Physical death, separation from, of body from the soul in the grave, and spiritual death, separation of man from God because of his fallenness. If there's no resurrection, death is a reality, and it's also a destiny. And not only that, but Paul kind of ends it this way in verse 19. If there is no resurrection, Christianity is a pitiful religion. There's no hope. There's no power. There's no purpose. If there is no resurrection, Christianity is just a man-made religion that offers nothing. You see, if there's no resurrection, Jesus didn't fulfill his promise. The gospel preaching is worthless. Christian faith uh, is useless. Christians are false witnesses. Everyone is in a state of sin. Everyone is destined to death. And Christianity is just plain pitiful. This is why without the resurrection, this is the darkest night in all of human history. But I'm glad that the Bible doesn't stop at the darkest night. Amen? The Bible doesn't stop there. Let's look at the next line. Because right away, Paul shares in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Would you look at each other and would you say, Christ is risen, he is risen indeed. Can we do that right now? All right, thank you. Where's the energy that came from, you know, uh, before? Anyway, that's okay, okay. Christ is risen, he is risen indeed. Let's see how the darkest night leads to the brightest day. And that's my second point. The brightest day in all of human history. Let's, con let's continue reading. In verse 1, uh, it says, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw the, tomb, uh, the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they put him. Verse 3, so, Simon, so Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. By the way, we know from biblical accounts that this other disciple was the author John that's writing this. And he's kind of bragging a little bit. He said, I, my cardio was a little bit better. So I got to the tomb first, right, before Peter, but he didn't go in. Let's look at verse 5. He bent over and looked in at the strips of lying there, uh, lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Now, this would have been a strange and interesting sight if we understand the Jewish custom for burial. So in the Jewish custom for burial, linen strips were wrapped around the body, but they were wrapped with spices, resin, myrrh, just, you know, and then they would wrap it some more with spices, resin, myrrh, and they would all, almost form a cocoon, okay, around the person. Almost like being mummified. Not as tightly, but it was almost like that. So the disciples noticed that the body was gone, but this huge cocoon of resin, spices, linen strips, it was all still there. And so this is the thought that is coming as you're reading this. 
If the body were stolen, they would have hurriedly taken the whole decayed body with the cocoon, right? It makes no sense that the strips and headcloth were left there. And so how was it that all of this was still left in the tomb? That's the thinking, right? In verse 8, let's continue. It says, finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. So John believed someone didn't steal the body. He knew something amazing and miraculous must have happened. Verse 9 tells us they weren't sure exactly what to make of this, but everything didn't totally click or, uh, you know, as they were looking at this. But one thing was for sure. They discovered an empty tomb. So why is the empty tomb so important? Why is this event so significant? What makes this the brightest day in all of human history? Well, number one, the empty tomb proves that Jesus is great enough to keep all of his promises. If you're taking notes, write that down. The empty tomb proves that Jesus is great enough to keep all of his promises. You see, Jesus promised his disciples that he would rise again on the third day. And when you study the Gospels, you will see that Jesus fulfills every prophecy, even to the minutest of details. What does that tell us? That you can bank on every promise that Jesus has given. Can I get an amen? You see, the darkest night said friends and situations and expectations will betray you. But the empty tomb promises that Jesus will never betray you. It gives feet to the words, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. It gives muscles to the words, I will be with you even until the end of the age. You see, the darkest night says there is defeat without hope. But the empty tomb says no defeat is big enough for you to lose hope. It brings finality to the promise, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. You see, the darkest night says that there is suffering without a purpose. But the empty tomb states that there, is, that there is purpose even in the worst of your suffering. It brings purpose to the promise. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love them, love him and are, according, are called according to his purpose. You see, the empty tomb proves that Jesus is great enough to keep all of his promises. Another point is that the empty tomb proves that Jesus is great enough to defeat death. Death has always been a frightening, unsettling reality. And philosophers for the longest time have told us death is very natural. But that's not how we feel, is it? When we near death, we don't comfort ourselves. Oh, death is just natural. I'm going to die. No, we get anxious about it, right? And rightly so. There's something very unsettling in our souls about death because we were never meant to just die that way. And the empty tomb gives us hope. It gives us promise because the empty tomb is Jesus' trophy that he has conquered death. Amen? Amen. Let me share this with you. I, I know I've shared this. If you've known me a long time, you've heard this before. Please don't get upset, okay? But I'm going to share this, okay? Uh, Wilson always talks about how good of a volleyball player he is and how much he loves playing volleyball. And I believe it, okay? I've never seen him play, but I, I believe Pastor Wilson, okay? Uh, I was never uh, that way, you know, now as an adult. But when I was a college kid, I was kind of like uh, Pastor Wilson in that I had an activity 
that I loved. And again, some of you have heard this time and time again. Sorry, sorry if you're doing this, but it's really good that I share this, okay? All right. Pastor Wilson loves volleyball. I, in, in college, I was addicted to karate, okay? I love going to karate tournaments. Can we put the next slide up, okay? If you've ever seen the Karate Kid or you've seen Cobra Kai, you know the kind of tournaments I'm talking about. And I was completely, in college, com completely absorbed to going to uh, tournaments, entering into tournaments. And so on the weekends, I would enter every Taekwondo, every mixed tournament that I could find. I would travel around even Florida and Alabama and Georgia, even as far as Texas, to compete in these tournaments. And if I can share this, I was really good, really good, okay? And I would win most of my fights. And most of the time that I entered the tournaments, I would win. I would win a trophy for whatever I was doing, okay? And there are times that I would get first place trophies, and these were huge. They didn't give you money back then. They just give you a big trophy, okay? And it was almost as big as me. And I remember those huge trophies that we would get. So on the way back home, right, as I was going home, we would stop at a restaurant. We'd stop at Perkins or we'd stop at Waffle House. Those things that are really popular in the South. And we would always, you know, our group, right, who uh, competed in the terms, we'd always bring our trophies inside. So imagine these massive trophies. We'd bring them into the restaurant and we'd set them on the table, right? And we would grunt and we would scream. And, you know, in Taekwondo, uh, the, the, uh, the exclamation for victory was manse, right? And so every so often we'd be eating and we'd be drinking. I'd, I'd drink Coca-Cola, of course. I'd be drinking. I'd go, Manse! You know? And another guy who was a karate guy, he would yell out the Japanese uh, phrase for victory, Banzai! And we would talk and we'd joke around. And that's what we would do, okay? And sometimes we'd get kicked out of the restaurant because we were too loud. But it was so fun as we would celebrate what had just happened, how I roundhouse kicked and knocked out somebody. And it felt so good to be able to be obnoxious and to hold up that trophy. Listen, a trophy is a tangible reminder of your victory. A trophy proves the date and the time that you had that victory, that you won. Can we put up the next slide? Today's Super Bowl, one team will get to hold up the Lombardi Trophy. Last year, the Buccaneers, Tom Brady, my favorite uh, football player of all time, was able to hold up that Lombardi Trophy. And every member of that team is going to touch that trophy. They're going to kiss that trophy. They're going to take pictures with that trophy. They're going to party with that trophy. Tom Brady took that trophy on a boat with him. You remember all about that last year. Some of you don't care. Okay, but the Lombardi trophy proves the date and the time when they became a champion. And so it is with the empty tomb. John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Jesus promises that you will live eternally. Well, how do you know that he's going to pull that off? Jesus proves it by the empty tomb. Jesus points to his trophy, the empty tomb, and gives you a date and time that he conquered death for you. And so when death bears its fangs in your life, the Christian can confidently say, death was your sting. There's no sting to death. Grave was your victory. There's no victory in death. Death is not this uh, scary reality for us anymore, those who are found in Christ Jesus. Can I get an amen? Jesus won victory over death 
when he resurrected from the tomb. There is an empty tomb. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if we can get back to the text, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. Okay? Think about this. Now, in verse 23, he says this, in Christ, all will be made alive because of Christ, the first fruits. So the title of Jesus is Christ, the first fruits. What does that mean? Well, it means this. Just as Jesus first and foremost rose from the dead, he is the first fruit, so also we will follow him in resurrection if we placed our faith and trust in him. He is that first fruit that allows the rest of us fruit to enter into eternal life. Isn't that beautiful? He is the title Christ the first fruit. The empty tomb proves that Jesus is great enough to defeat death. And then the third point. The empty tomb proves that Jesus is great enough to handle your sins. You know, Jesus came to earth to free you from the bondage of sin. His very name means that he will save his people from their sins. So I want to ask you this morning, are you struggling with sin? The empty tomb is a reminder that sin doesn't have to have control over you anymore. It empowers us to have victory over our temptations, over our sins, because Jesus paid for it on the cross and he rose again to give you victory. Are you in a dark night today? Do you doubt God's promises in your life? Do you feel alone and isolated in this world? Are you living fearful and powerless in your existence? May I share with you, you need to discover the empty tomb this morning. The power of Jesus' resurrection. You see, the darkest night leads to the brightest day, which leads to my last point. Point number three, the greatest transformation in all of human history. And I really believe this is true. The greatest transformation in all of human history. Now, I want you to notice Jesus' appearance, who he appears to first. Let's look in verse 14. At this, she, Mary Magdalene, turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't recognize that it was Jesus. And he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Verse 16. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned around toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rebani, which means teacher. This is interesting that Jesus first appears to a woman. Now, as a first century reader reading this, this would have been crazy. This would have been shocking. You know why? Because women were seen as insignificant in the first century. Women were seen as inferior. Let me give you an example. If you were to call a, a woman as a witness to testify in a trial, their testimony alone would have been seen as inadequate and inconsequential. You know, their testimony would have been thrown out if that's all the witness that you have. So the idea that something as important as the resurrection of the Son of God would have been first witnessed by a woman would have been seen in the first century as ridiculous. You're going to want somebody with some gravitas to witness this. Why is he talking about a woman? They would have thought it's a waste of an appearance. They really would have thought this. Now, if you were Jesus, who would you have appeared to? All right? You're Jesus. You just rose again. Who would you appear? I thought about this. I thought, man, I'd love to appear to Pilate, right? I would love to, hey, I'm alive, bro, you know? I'm not dead. I would have scared him to death. 
Or I would have gone to the Sanhedrin. I would have said, bow before me, right? I am the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I'm your Mashiach. I would have done that. Or I would have gone to Tiberius Caesar, and I would have said, you're not the king. I'm the king, right? I would have started a resurrection tour of Egypt and Greece and Rome. I would have gone to all the power players to let them know that the king has arrived. You know? That's, but I'm sinful, you know? That's the wrong thing to do. You know, this is precisely why Jesus' first appearance was to a woman. It's because our Lord doesn't care about the power players. He doesn't care about those in positions of authority in and of itself. Jesus cares about appearing to those who love him. He appears to his people, to his children, to his own. And he concerns himself with those like Mary Magdalene who are committed to him. And I want you to notice the intimate interplay that he calls her Mary and she calls him Rebbeni, oh my teacher. Jesus knows and cares about her. And that's the resurrection truth. You may feel like a nobody this morning. You may feel completely insignificant. But do you know the resurrection truth is that Jesus knows you and he loves you by name. Amen? Amen. He, first of all, appears to a woman. Now I want you to notice who he appears to next. He appears to the weak. Verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders... I want you to look at the disciples. They're hiding in fear. They still think it's the darkest night. They're all scared and confused and anxious and discouraged and overwhelmed. Verse 19, let's continue. Jesus came and stood among them and he said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. They're hiding in fear. Jesus appears to his disciples and he proves to them that he is risen. That he's big enough to keep his promises. That he's great enough to defeat death. That he's strong enough to save from sin. That he's powerful enough to transform their lives. Now I want you to consider the disciples after the resurrection. In verse 21, Jesus says, the Father has sent me, now I am sending you. Think about this. The disciples now, in the power of the resurrection, go and proclaim the gospel to the world. Can you show the next slide? You you know, history and tradition tells us what happens to the disciples. And I think this is very important that we share this. James, the son of Zebedee, as they go out to the world, was beheaded by Herod in Jerusalem. Paul of Tarsus was beheaded by Nero in Rome. Bartholomew was tortured and beheaded in Armenia. Philip was tortured to death in Turkey. Matthew was speared to death in Ethiopia. Thomas was speared to death in India. Thaddeus was stoned to death in Persia. Matthias was stoned to death in Jerusalem. Simon the Zealot was crucified in Jerusalem. James the son of Alphaeus was crucified in Rome. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. Andrew was crucified in Greece. And John the son of Zebedee was tortured by being boiled in oil. Why do I share this with you? Because before the resurrection, they were scared and confused and anxious and secure. Now, because of the resurrection, they are bold and determined and courageous and confident. Can I share with you, all of them were willing to lay down their lives for Jesus and the gospel. I believe this is the greatest proof of the resurrection. You see, people will die for something they believe to be true. 
But people will not die for something they know to be false. If the disciples had stolen the body, if they had fabricated this message, if it were all just an elaborate scam, they would have left at the first sign of suffering. What advantage is it to suffer for a lie? But the disciples' willingness to suffer and die for the gospel is proof that they absolutely had been transformed by the power of the resurrection. And the only explanation of this transformation is resurrection. Can I get an amen? This morning I want to ask, are you living in fear? Are you living in maybe fear of the future and what it entails? Do you find yourself in a season of doubt where you doubt God's promises? Do you feel alone and isolated with no one to turn to? Are you experiencing maybe a season of suffering and you're asking, what's the purpose? If it's you in any way, shape, or form, it's time to appropriate Jesus' resurrection in your life. It's time to live out the power of the resurrection. Every head bowed, every eye closed just for a moment. I want to say to you, Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. Hi, this is Pastor Wilson again. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If our sermons have been a blessing to you, I'd love for you to consider supporting our church and ministry. As we approach the end of the year, we're asking our church family to consider investing into a special fund that support our interns and seminarians. Renew has a vision of investing in pastors for the next generation through our internship program. And your financial partnership can help set up a young pastor or missionary to faithfully serve the Lord for the next 30 to 40 years. I often dream about what Irwin or Kevin will do for the kingdom of God through their 30s, 40s, and 60s. Our goal is to raise $50,000 over the season. Would you consider joining us? You can give through PayPal or Venmo or by sending a check. All the information is on the description section of the podcast, or you can visit our website, and your investment is tax-deductible. Thank you so much for being a part of our church family. If you're ever in the Fullerton, California area, please drop by into our Sunday service. I'd love to meet you. God bless.